A casual observer is sipping a cappuccino at a cafe table outside of a French bistro. When he looks up, he spots a woman walking toward him. She's well-dressed and her golden blonde hair is pulled back into a low-slung ponytail. The observer watches as the woman digs around in her expensive-looking handbag to pull out her car keys. A black BMW Z4 convertible suddenly blinks and tweets to life. The woman opens the driver's side door and tosses her handbag along with a small white shopping bag into the passenger seat. The observer continues to watch as the woman shuts her car door and then cranks the engine. She takes a moment to check her makeup in the rearview mirror while the convertible top slowly peels open. The woman puts her car into reverse and the observer watches as she carefully pulls out of her parking space. Then she disappears down the lazy street that splits through the middle of the posh shopping district. The observer takes another sip of his cappuccino. He wipes his lips and says under his breath, hmm, must be nice. But what if the observer knew the real story? What if he knew that the woman just bought a box of bargain brand tampons and two mini peanut butter cups with all of the quarters, dimes, and nickels she had in her coin purse? If the observer could follow the woman all the way home, he'd see her gripping her steering wheel with white knuckles as she cautiously drives past the driveway leading to her luxury waterfront condo. She's looking for a tow truck or flatbed. Once she sees that the coast is clear, she makes a three-point turn and heads back toward her building. She gently navigates her convertible down the steep driveway and into the gated garage entrance. Once she has the car safely parked inside of her private garage, she takes a deep breath for the first time in five minutes. She made it home. With shaky hands, the woman fumbles around inside of the white shopping bag to pull out one of the mini peanut butter cups. She quickly unwraps the candy and pops it into her mouth. As the stiff chocolate and peanut butter melts on her tongue, the woman closes her eyes. Tears slowly slide down her cheeks as she searches for the courage to savor this indulgence that she knows she doesn't deserve. Hey everyone, my name is Sonia Bentley Zant, and welcome to my new podcast called Nerd Alert. That was an excerpt from a book I wrote called The Imposition Tour, and the title of that chapter, as well as the name of this episode, is The Honest Fraud. I named them that because the woman in the story is me, and the imposition tour is my memoir. To borrow a few more words from that chapter of my book, a little more than a decade ago, I was that woman with the fancy clothes and the sexy convertible and the life that didn't match my appearance anymore. But I can promise you this, I never meant to be living a life I couldn't afford. It's just everything happened very quickly. For years, my life resembled a basin, filled to the brim with fresh, sparkly water. Then, someone unexpectedly pulled the plug, and my whole world started to rapidly recede. And the next thing I knew, I was circling the drain in this crazy vortex of events that sucked everything I had down the tubes in one noisy swallow. <laughs> okay, so let's just go ahead and get it out of the way right now, because you know you're thinking it. And if it makes you feel any better, I'm thinking it too. So why don't we just say it together? Boo-hoo, the rich blonde girl's BMW convertible was being repoed. So sad. Not really. I don't know about you, but I feel better now, and there are so many other layers of my former life that were stripped from me in a humiliating string of events that ultimately don't make me seem like a very sympathetic character. But now it's been so long since I lost most of the things that used to make me feel and probably seem fancy that I don't think I know that woman in the story the same way as I used to. I guess that's because the experience of losing all of my money in one epic event altered me in ways that make it tricky for me to go back and unknow the answers to the lessons I had no idea were just ahead of me back then. In this first episode of Nerd Alert, I want to go back and explore some of those things from my past and really consider how the events of the past 10 years have changed me. But in preparing for this episode, I realize now how I never truly dealt with my past story and that's left me stuck and stalled out all these years later. I've also been thinking a lot about in our culture how most people, including me, are striving to be a somebody. And when I think about it, when I had more money, I kind of think I thought I was a somebody. 
But now that I've been living without my former status as a defining part of my life, and I technically think of myself as a nobody, is that really a good way for me to be looking at things? I guess questions like these are the reason why I decided to start a podcast in the first place. It seemed like a good place to keep working out my story. And perhaps my experiences will mean something to someone else along the way. That's my hope anyway. Okay, so before I dive into this first episode, I want to talk a little bit about this podcast. I've named it Nerd Alert for a couple of reasons. For one, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. I listen to probably 10 a week, sometimes more, which I know might sound like a lot, but it really does depend on the kind of week I'm having. But the main thing is I like to keep busy. And so I listen to podcasts when I'm hiking, when I'm cleaning, when I'm driving. Whenever I'm in motion, I'm usually plugged into a podcast. But I also love to read. So if I'm not listening to a podcast, I'm probably reading a blog or an article that popped up on my newsfeed. I just like to learn, and I always gain so much from engaging in the stories of other people, no matter what kind of stories they are. But podcasts are my main jam, and maybe you could even say that I'm addicted to consuming stories in the form of a podcast, so much so that I usually give people a fair warning before I start to share. Nerd alert! You've been warned! (laughs) But the name of my podcast is also relevant to me as a person. I consider myself to be a lifelong learner, and while that doesn't exactly make me or anyone like me a a nerd, I do take comfort in that term. See, I never feel like I know enough or like I'm finished changing or growing, no matter how old I get. And so for me, digging in and doing the work to get the lesson is just who I am. Every single day, I feel like something new moves into my awareness, and even though many of the things in my life are still being learned the hard way, I feel so thankful that every messy, mundane, and occasionally triumphant happening in my world can teach me a little bit more and help me move forward with a bit more empathy and grace for myself as well as for other people too. That's what podcasts do for me. They give me a window into the stories of other people and the thoughts they provoke in me make me feel like there's always hope for me to learn so I can get better and do better in my life. I think I should probably also tell you a few things about me before I jump in. Um, For starters, I currently live in Sonoma, California, and I'm an author. But to be perfectly clear, I published my first novel called Hurricane Season back in 2007, which feels like forever ago. And since the title of this episode is The Honest Fraud, I feel like I need to mention this long lapse in my career because sometimes... I do wonder if publishing that one book so long ago means I can still refer to myself as an author. But I guess the fact that I've written three more books plus I'm writing a fourth novel right now does in fact fit the definition of an author, so I'm going to go ahead and let that one stand. But I guess the most important thing I'd like you to know about me is this. I'm a storyteller. That's what I like to call myself because I love telling stories. But I also adore listening to a well-told narrative because no matter what, The story has this power to suck me in and move me and teach me things. I guess it's also good for you to know that I'm married and my husband's name is Lou. He's such a huge part of my life that I'm sure I'll mention him in this and future episodes as well. We've been in each other's lives for a little more than 25 years now. And like most couples, we've been through a lot of things together, some really good and some pretty terrible. But Lou is incredibly tolerant of my need to talk about my story, which obviously includes him too. So if he's listening to this podcast, I just want to thank him in advance for being so good to me and for being so willing to let me talk about my story. All right, so I have one more thing to note. In addition to this podcast, I also have a blog called SonyaWrites.com, and that's where you can find my memoir that I mentioned earlier in this podcast. There's a link to my blog in the show notes. But in addition to my memoir, I also post daily thoughts and musings on my blog, and so this podcast is kind of an adjunct of sorts to help me explore my thoughts even further. Just as a fair warning, I'm kind of a wonky blogger, (laughs) but I'm doing my best. And I learn something new every time I put myself out into the world for public consumption. I'm pretty sure I'm off to a wonky start as a podcaster too, but I have to say, I adore having a place to preach to myself and work out my thoughts with my written words and now with my spoken words too. But anyway, let's get back to Nerd Alert. 
So let's talk about the honest fraud. I decided to start out with this excerpt of my memoir for the first episode of my podcast because lately I've been realizing how helpful it's been to write and post about my past. However, I think there are certain things about containing my mixed up and very emotionally charged history in a tight little story that's been keeping me stuck. And I guess that's what I want to explore in this first episode, especially since I'm just getting the hang of this process and you're just trying to get to know me. So anyway, I'm just going to jump on in. A few months ago, this woman that I've gotten to know pretty well over the past couple of years said something kind of strange to me. She said, Sonia, I honestly can't picture you as a wealthy person. (laughs) I think after she said this to me, she wasn't sure if she meant that as a compliment or as an insult. I have to say, neither did I. But knowing her the way I think I do, I'm pretty sure what she meant was she can only picture me the way I am now. And the way I am now is kind of a wobbly woman who worries a lot and who's constantly looking for a side hustle to help me cover my bills. But right after this woman made that remark, it shifted me into a pondering kind of space and eventually I realized that I wasn't insulted by what she said. But I think I was embarrassed. And I think I was ashamed. I think I talk about my past too much. And I do it in such a way that it totally disses on the life I have now. And I think the way I share things makes it sound like I do have a poor me complex. Yet I've figured out a way to make my real feelings about the two versions of my life seem honest and more worthy somehow. It's as if the course correction I've been trying to make in my life for the past 10 years or so has created this polarizing energy inside of me that comes out of me in the most obnoxious way. And I know that might sound harsh. But I know I'm on to something good here, so just hang with me if you can. I can tell you this. I remember feeling so ashamed back when I was the version of myself that the casual observer drinking his cappuccino saw walking down the street. And so when I made my first attempt to course correct, I think I got in the habit of going too far. I remember feeling less awful about the part of me that looked like a fraud if I was painfully and awkwardly honest about every other detail of my fall from the top to the bottom. I actually remember how liberating it felt the first time I admitted to someone that I couldn't afford to go to lunch anymore, because it didn't take long for me to run out of quarters, dimes, and nickels back then, and I was also running out of lame excuses and dodging techniques that my friends would actually accept. So ripping off the band-aid and saying we were broke felt kind of heady. And it took away the cover I was hiding under on my terms. I do think I've come to understand that even my definition for what fancy Sonia should look like is different now. I'm at peace with a life that doesn't include designer shoes and clothes, and I'm absolutely certain I don't need an incredibly lavish home or a sports car in my driveway like I used to have. But what my latest version of Fancy Sonia does have is this. A career of my own that includes the perfect income to cover all of my bills with ease every month. A simple home I can keep extremely clean. A washing machine and dryer with an ample stash of Tide Original laundry products and a healthy, happy husband. Oh, and just because I need to set a precedence for honesty in this podcast, the latest version of Fancy Sonia also has just enough disposable income to get my hair professionally highlighted once in a while, as opposed to every six weeks, and to treat my friends and my sister and my sister-in-law to a fun lunch or a happy excursion on me. I used to love being in a position to spoil the people that I love, and I really do miss that. Just so you know, it's exhausting to always feel needy or like you're the expensive friend that everyone has to pay for in order for you to join them when they make plans they want to include you in. But I think it's starting to become clear that there are these two strong voices at odds in my inner narrative about myself when it comes to my finances in particular. I have the Sonia who's so eager to shame herself while living transparently. And then there's the version of Sonia who still believes that someday something will shift in the universe and my finances won't even be a fleeting worry anymore. And if that happens, then maybe I can go back to buying a few lovely things here and there and picking up tabs and spoiling people with all of my fanciness and finery. I seriously can't stand listening to myself. 
But I know the thing that's bugging me the most these days is living in this kind of in-between space in my mind where I'm definitely not the old Sonia anymore. Yet there are things about who I was that I always will be. And so trying to fit myself into an old version versus a new version of myself just isn't working for me anymore. Nerd alert! You've been warned! I was reading this article that popped up on my newsfeed a few days ago and the headline was, The Purpose of Life is to Be a Nobody. That's a pretty catchy title and if you want to read the article for yourself, I've put a link in the show notes for this episode. But for now, I'll quote this subheader directly just so you can get the gist of the article. Quote, Acknowledging unimportance liberates us from the grip of the self-centered voice in our head that's chiefly responsible for many of life's difficulties. I do not disagree with that statement at all, and the article was actually pretty good. I really believe with all my heart that looking inward all the time and living my life in my own self-contained narrative can be quite harmful over time. And I also believe that a self-centered life is way too confining, and it can be pretty destructive to ourselves and to our society. But before I continue, I have to say this. I can hardly think of anything more self-involved or self-centered than writing a memoir about my life, posting it on a blog, and then starting my own podcast. I mean, come on. Everything I'm doing is totally centered on me, me, and then more me. Yet, I do believe there is value in expressing thoughts and sharing stories, whether the thoughts and stories are mine or someone else's. And so I hope my efforts to push my words out into the world will make it so that my thoughts, my stories, and my ideas won't just be about me anymore. And maybe if I can get better at all of this, my thoughts will hit on something that will allow them to be about you, too. But who knows? (laughs) All I can do is give it my best shot, right? Anyway, I just had to get that off my chest before I could continue. So back to the article about the value of being a nobody. When I compare this particular article to my life, back when I was fancy and right where I'm at right now, I feel like I can personally attest to how it all works. Whether or not I ever called myself a somebody back when I was financially emancipated, if you will, I really do believe I moved through life as if I was entitled to more than I probably was. I didn't have the self-awareness that I do now, and I often didn't realize how little I understood about life and what other people were going through. And that's the part of this isolating somebody conversation that makes being a nobody seem pretty important to me. But to keep things on track, here are a few key points directly from this article. Being a nobody allows us to truly experience and appreciate the profoundness of the sublime. (laughs) Okay, okay, that one's a little bit weird. But I guess it could just be that word sublime that's a little too ethereal for me. But what the point does bring up for me is this. When I stopped being so caught up in who I thought I was, I became more present. And that's when the simple things in my daily life had the chance to become sublime, I suppose. All I know is that I definitely appreciate the small things in my life as if they're big things now, and that seems like a major shift. Okay, how about this point? Being a nobody frees us from the irrational pressures and expectations of an uncertain world. Yes, 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 I totally agree. But for me, it was the self-imposed pressure of my persona that often kept me off kilter the most in my life back in the day. And in fact, that excerpt that I read at the beginning of this podcast from my memoir perfectly describes how exhausting and sad it was for me to keep up appearances when my entire world was falling apart. Now, mind you, no one was asking me to keep up appearances. That was all on me. But I just didn't know how to let go. And so driving an expensive sports car to run a quick and obviously necessary errand when I was four months late on the lease payment was never a part of my plan. Whenever I drove my car anywhere after our reversal of fortune, I felt so trapped and scared and just awful. So when the repo man finally caught me, the relief and the freedom I felt outweighed the fears that I had about trying to figure out how to do my life without a car. (laughs) By the way, I've gotten really good at that. 
Okay, finally, there's one more point from this article I want to mention. And for me, it's the one that's kind of got me a little sideways. Here it is. Quote, being a nobody gives us the humility to realize that it's our struggles that define us, not our desires. Okay. I do agree that my humility and struggles have redefined me. And some of the ways that my struggles have changed me do make me feel like a better version of myself. But here's the thing. This statement puts me directly in the crosshairs of my current dilemma. In that one tight statement, it's just perfectly describing the ditch that I'm stuck in. Let me read it again. Being a nobody gives us the humility to realize that it's our struggles that define us, not our desires. When I do an inventory of my inner thoughts with this statement running in the background of my mind, I can say that I really do have humility now and I mostly know who I am as a nobody too. But that doesn't mean I don't have desires. And while it has been liberating and freeing to be able to strip myself of my fancy Sonia identity by writing my memoir and facing my life changes with my faith, I, I don't think I can find total contentment in being a nobody forever. And I don't think I can keep myself from seeking more for my life. And if you really want to know what I think, then I think I just need to tell you that calling a humbled person a nobody seems super unfair. Now, I'm sure if you decide to read this article for yourself, you'll understand right away that the use of the term nobody isn't defending the use of a derogatory label to put on somebody. But rather, I believe the article is actually trying to elevate that term by exploring how freeing it can be to live your life outside your ego. And I really do get that. It's just that the term nobody really triggered me. Ever since I read that article, I've been trying to organize my thoughts in a way that makes more sense to me. Because based on that article, I'm a first class nobody. But I don't really like that about myself. As I've continued to ponder things, one of the biggest snags I've hit upon is how the juxtaposition, I guess you could call it, of the term nobody versus somebody is creating the biggest rub for me. It just feels like those two choices are both really confining and only look at things from the outside, not the inside. And no matter who's doing the looking, I don't want to wear either of those titles on my shoulders. And I feel like it's the direct comparison of nobody and somebody that sets me up for this frustration in my thoughts. I mean, for goodness sake, I'm just as prone as the next guy to comparisons in my life. And obviously, I can get pretty stuck in a thought spiral where I completely spend all my time comparing my circumstances from my past to the life I am now. And then sometimes I even get caught up in comparing my life to someone else's life that seems more like a somebody than a nobody. And all of a sudden I realize how much I miss being better off than I am now. So I guess I could simply put it, makes me really miss being a somebody. And when I think about it, I'm sure this is exactly what that friend of mine picked up on about me. I talk about my past with so much longing that my friends can clearly see that I've tried to accept my current status as a nobody and I'm obviously not content with my life as it is now because all I seem to do is compare my old life to my new life in a super whiny way and as a result I'm not really re really living my real life with all that much grace. It's interesting, but admitting this to myself now is also leading me into another self-discovery of how petty I can be, especially when I consider how well off I still am compared to so many other people in this world. You know, I commonly hear people say this catchphrase after someone complains about a problem they're having. Sounds like a first world problem to me. And then everyone laughs uncomfortably because that statement reduces the problem into a comparison paradigm that somehow adds a more politically correct ring to it, I suppose. Just so you know, that sentiment is one of my inner shame monster's favorite snacks because I know I worry about all of the things that would be by definition first world kinds of issues. I mean, I live in the United States and in California in the wine country on top of that. So because my self-awareness measuring system is set to the highest, most critical settings when I'm blogging and now podcasting, 
I do want to acknowledge that my state of mind about my finances is kind of tricky. But this first world stuff is very dismissive because when someone's struggling with a problem, whether we get it or not, it's still a problem for that person, right? But here's the kicker about that. Being stuck in that shame narrative phase of my life makes me feel like I can't possibly go without mentioning that my issues with the past shouldn't be a big deal. Yet for me, my issues actually are a big deal to me. And until I work them out inside of myself, I'll always be that girl that's flip-flopping between her past and her present in a way that emphasizes this somebody versus nobody paradigm in my own thinking. And now that I can see this situation so clearly, I can tell you this. I don't want to be like that anymore. Nerd alert. You've been warned. On a recent hike, I was listening to a podcast called This American Life, and I think it's perfectly fitting that it's the first Nerd Alert podcast I'm mentioning in my series because this long-running weekly show was pretty much my first introduction into podcasting. It's a great storytelling podcast, and I've been hooked on it for at least 10 years now. But the episode I was listening to on that hike was episode 679, Save the Girl. It's a fantastic episode, and I could probably talk about it for days because it hits on a couple of topics that are really huge on my heart. But the real pearl I took from listening to this episode was found in something that the host Ira Glass used in his segue to string Act 1 together with Act 2. He talked about a lecture the famous American author Kurt Vonnegut gave about the shape of a story. Now, as soon as I got home from my hike, I got even nerdier, and I looked up this lecture on YouTube, and I was perfectly dazzled by how it helped me find some new thoughts for myself and for this podcast. I've put a link to the YouTube in my show notes as well as one for This American Life in case you want to check them out. But to help me unpack my thoughts in a way that will be more useful in this podcast, if you're not familiar with Kurt Vonnegut or any of his writing, Let's just say that the dude was a pretty busy writer. I mean, he wrote 14 books, several collections of short stories and some plays, and even a number of nonfiction books on top of all of that. But to be completely honest, I've only read one of his books, the one called Slapstick. And in the interest of full disclosure, I only read it because it was required reading for a class I took in college. I'm not really a fan of science fiction content, which is more or less the main genre for his work, but I do remember liking aspects of this book because it was really nuanced, and it was about loneliness. And I do recall liking aspects of Vonnegut's black-hearted humor, which is kind of something I strangely enjoy and something you might one day learn about me based on some of the podcasts I like to listen to. Anyway... I already knew a little bit about Vonnegut's bio from discussing him in school. Uh, I remember he was from the Midwest and his family was greatly impacted by the Great Depression. And I remember learning that he had some super awful experiences in the war. But back in school, I was just learning enough facts about his life to pass a test. But reading his early life bio at this point in my life was very different. And it's kind of where I found a tiny sweet spot of understanding to add to the YouTube about his shape of a story lecture. So I'm just going to read a slightly shortened version of notes I pulled and tweaked a little from his website. And I think you'll totally see what I mean. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. was born on November 11th, 1922 in Indianapolis, Indiana, a city he would later use in his novels as a symbol of American values. Kurt Sr. was one of the most prominent architects in the city, and his wife, Edith, was the daughter of a wealthy Indianapolis brewer. The fortunes of the family changed dramatically during the Depression when Kurt Sr. saw his architectural business disappear. He had to sell his family home and take young Kurt out of the orchard school, which I'm guessing was a fancy private school back then. But back to his bio. This radical change in economic circumstances caused Kurt Sr. to virtually give up on life and Edith to become addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs. Kurt Jr.'s lifelong pessimism clearly had its roots in his parents' despairing response to being blindsided by the Depression. 
do hope you enjoyed that nerdy rendition of his bio. But when I read his bio, I found this wrinkle of permission, I guess you could call it, in my self-shaming narrative that gave me some relief when it comes to my need to compare my life to the life of someone else or to the life I had in the past. It was in that last little chunk of his bio, the part that read, This radical change in economic circumstances caused Kurt Sr. to virtually give up on life. And then they said it was his father's despairing response to being blindsided by the depression that ultimately altered Kurt's life forever. That felt really relatable to me, probably because that surprising loss narrative feels familiar. I can tell you from personal experience that totally unexpected reversal of fortune is pretty jarring. And it makes you doubt everything and everyone, and most especially, it makes you doubt yourself. It just really does. Losing your money feels like what I imagine losing gravity for a minute might feel like. Everything just falls out from underneath you, and you float around for a minute or two in denial, but then when gravity kicks back in, you suddenly find yourself splayed out flat on the floor. And for me, at least, I just couldn't lay there. I had to get up. But what I understand now is that it doesn't have to be a loss that makes sense to anyone else to be upending or life-altering because no one else can understand another person and how their life was built up. You just can't know what's real and what's not real when all you can see are the details from the outside looking in, not the inside looking out. And so even if you think you know how someone has put his or her life together, you absolutely don't. And I hate to say it, but I think in one way or another, everyone is ultimately living in a house of cards that could get knocked down at any moment. But you don't know that until it happens to you. For years, my house of cards didn't feel vulnerable. And in my case, even when it was crumbling down around me, I continued to live in it because I had no reason to question that the foundation wouldn't hold. So things like the Great Depression or a shady trust officer doing tricky things with your money can indeed feel blindsiding when it happens to you. Now, I will say that because of my faith, I don't think I've ever come to an exact place of despair in my own life that was quite as profound as Vonnegut's father's. But there were some times, especially in my early days, where wrapping my brain around our losses was incredibly difficult. Back then, I didn't have the wherewithal to even comprehend how things were going to turn out for us. And even now, I still have my doubts. So I've stuffed a lot of my feelings and done my best to get on with my life. But clearly, that hasn't worked out so well for me. But when I couple my old familiar feelings inspired by Vonnegut's bio with his lecture on how stories look when you plot them on a mathematical scale of sorts, I discovered a lot of useful perspective that I can now take into my own life story. And oh my gosh, just finding perspective can sometimes really be all I need to keep going. I guess the nerd in me hopes you'll take some time to watch the YouTube because to me, the late Kurt Vonnegut was super interesting and his dry humor is pretty awesome. But in case you don't watch it, and for the sake of my podcast, I'll quickly recap the highlights in my own words. In his lecture, Vonnegut creates a simple line graph on a dusty old chalkboard. He draws a vertical axis that represents good fortune at the top of the line and ill fortune at the bottom of the line. Then he draws a horizontal timeline that splits the vertical line into two parts. The far left end of the line represents the story's beginning. And the far right line represents the story's end, or the entropy, as he calls it in his lecture. Then Vonnegut proceeds to plot the story arc of the most common stories we know and celebrate in our culture. In his first example, Vonnegut plots the first point on the storyline midway up the vertical line to set the tone for a story that begins when the character is experiencing life of good fortune. But then something happens, which Vonnegut calls a man falling into a hole, that causes the storyline to drop down and cross over the timeline and then dip into the ill-fortune area of the graph. But then the man in the hole gets rescued, and so his storyline triumphantly swoops back up into the good-fortune space once again. As Vonnegut puts it, (laughs) we like the shape of that story, and he's right, we do. But then there's another story shape, and Vonnegut uses Cinderella as his example. 
That starts out below the timeline in the ill fortune area, but then vividly steps up into the good fortune space when the sad little stepdaughter gets a fantastic makeover from her fairy godmother. The line quickly hits a high point when the prince falls in love with Cinderella at the ball, only to dramatically fall down again to the ill fortune paradigm when the clock strikes midnight. But then the line climbs back up to the good fortune category when the lost glass slipper fits Cinderella's foot. And very suddenly, her storyline takes on the most amazing trajectory that launches her into an eternity of happiness and joy. Vonnegut goes on to plot several other common versions of story arcs from the cultural collection that we tend to believe in and that we ultimately expect to take shape in the stories we read, the stories we watch, as well as the stories we actually live, which was so relevant to me because I am such a sucker for a story and I will fully acknowledge how conditioned I am to expect my own life story to fit into one of the story shapes that Vonnegut so expertly plotted in his lecture. But if I were to take my life story starting in 2008 and extend it to right now, the shape of my story doesn't fit with any of his and that totally bums me out. My fall from the top of the good fortune space to the ill fortune space at the start of my story looks very dramatic and steep right off the bat. But then the line sort of keeps moving monotonously forward and it always hovers just below the timeline stays stuck in the ill fortune space. At least it does in the way that I'm plotting it with my memories. And if I get super technical with my plots, sometimes the line even dipped deeper below into the ill fortune here and there. But my story and I never displays any kind of meaningful spike that pushes my story back up into the good fortune space again. Now I will openly admit that my hopes for things to shift for Lou and me will often give me a reason to believe my storyline is about to somehow spike back up, but so far, based on how I want to see the shape of my story life unfold, my storyline is always hovering just below the line of good, and that frustrates me. I feel completely humbled and I know I don't need much to be happy anymore, but there's this constant idea that I've already confessed to you that bounces around inside of me and I guess we could just call it desire. And it's not a desire for more things, but it is a desire to be living and working in my purpose. I want to do more and contribute more and I want to be busy and helpful and useful in my life. And I want my storytelling to be the thing that lifts me from the ill fortune to the good fortune because I know it's what I'm created to do. And I want it to be my time, as selfish as that probably sounds. But it's just the truth. I want my story shape to appear because I'm so bored with this flatlined version of my life. As much as I appreciate my side hustle opportunities and as willing as I am to keep trying, I really do wish something would somehow launch me from the ill fortune continuum to the good fortune space. But at the moment, no such launching point has manifested itself into my awareness at least, so I guess I'll just grind on. I do apologize if I'm starting to sound bitter or whiny, but I'm just pushing my honesty out into the open so I can see myself the way you probably do. I don't exactly like what I see, or I guess hear in this case, but I know I'm a work in progress. We all are. But all of this nerding out and personal introspection is mercifully summarized in the conclusion of Vonnegut's lecture, and so I guess I'll start to wrap things up from here. As Vonnegut stepped away from his chalkboard diagram with every kind of story shape you can think of, except for the shape of my story, that is, he asked a rhetorical question about whether or not it's even fair or accurate to judge any story on a graph that only represents the quality of that story as either good or bad over the course of time. And it's his conclusion to his own question where I can finally find my point. He said that after he thought about it for such a long time, he realized that one can never know enough about life to tell if a story is either good or bad. And when he said that, I instantly agreed with him. Because I do think I understand that there are simply way too many realities, too many experiences, subplots, intersecting points, mitigating circumstances, events, as well as even people in our lives to keep track of that ultimately influence the movement of a story on a line at any given point in time. 
And for me, the shape of my life story isn't made up of just one line. Rather, it's made up of three. My story, my husband's story, and the line that makes up my faith. Then there are countless other intersecting realities that add vibrations that alter my line, that alter Lou's line, as well as my faith line, if you want to be honest. And that just makes my story way too complicated to ever accurately plot, which is the reason why it also makes the shape of my story impossible to fairly judge. So instead of judging my story for myself, I guess the next best thing I can come up with is to compare my life now to the shape of the story I think I'm able to remember from my past. But the shape of that story has been flattened by my memories. <laughs> so it's void of all of the nuances and all of the truth that gives a person's real story the actual substance of what we call life. So there's no way I can adequately compare the life I have now to my past in some sort of simplified shape that I can map out on a two-dimensional surface. My story is just way too interesting for that. As Vonnegut so perfectly puts it, we as human beings all just pretend that the story of our life follows such a predictable and simplified expression of story. And we basically just, quote, echo the feelings of people around us, end quote, to create the narrative we hope to project to the world. So in other words, when our story gets too complicated to plot in a way that looks acceptable to ourselves or to others, we end up reshaping our stories to fit into a flattened collective narrative that most everyone can understand and we start to believe that however our stories line up with the stories of others gives us the ability to call our lives good or bad. And when you get right down to it, how those narratives line up in a direct comparison might just be the way we've started to think of one person as a somebody, while another person is a nobody. just now dawning on me that maybe math and storytelling do have an intersection of usefulness for me after all because I totally hate math and I'm terrible with numbers but when I started trying to create the shape of my story by plotting it on a line graph it was pretty helpful but what all of this thinking and plotting has made me wonder is this are all of us living a version of our lives like an honest fraud because we're all trying to turn our stories into a familiar shape that looks the way we want it to Maybe, but I'm sure I'll never know. And please don't worry, I won't put all of that kind of thinking on you or anyone else. I realize how unfair it would be to accuse you of being anything like me. I'm the honest fraud, not you. And this episode is really all about helping me unwind some of my own stuff, not shaming or pointing fingers at other people. But I must say this, it's impossible to unpack these nerdy thoughts without pointing the finger at me. Because so much of my energy when I think about my past has been spent trying to plot out where things went wrong on the timeline of my story. But I also constantly wonder how I can alter the trajectory of my storyline to get myself back into that good fortune continuum again. I feel as if I've made some progress, especially in the past few weeks, but I've also been tempted to just lower my expectations on the height of the good versus bad access line. Until I read that article I mentioned earlier, and then I tried to imagine living the rest of my life as a content and humble nobody. And that just didn't feel right. Because what if my future has the potential to push my life story a little higher on the plot point of the good fortune line than I've ever had before? And all I'm doing by comparing the life that I've already lived to the life I want to have now is limiting my potential. Well, my first reaction to saying that out loud is this. Don't think like that, Sonia. That kind of thinking can set you up for some painful disappointments. Because believe me, my hopeful thinking has crushed my spirit before. So I know I have some healing to do and some super bad loss PTSD. But here's a question that might be more useful for me. What if there was a total reset button I could press that would allow the shape of my story to take on a fresh new beginning that doesn't need comparison from my past to be awesome in its own way? Perhaps there is a reset button for me, and it's called grieving. I now realize that I skipped most of that process because even now, grieving the loss of my things just seems very selfish to me. I bet on some levels I did grieve some of my losses, but not the very deepest kinds of loss. Things like my loss of trust, the loss of my identity, the loss of financial consistency. 
I've read where people who live through the Great Depression never really get over it. And so they're prone to hoarding or rationing things, even when they don't need to anymore. The loss they experienced was so profound it permanently altered their view of life. As for me, I think there's still hope for me to change, and I don't believe the damage my losses inflicted on me were permanent. At least I hope not. I guess I believe this because my life is way too good for that to be true. But I also know I need to take a radical step away from my old story because I still feel so much rational and irrational shame around my past. So maybe if I took some time to really explore my feelings of loss, I might end up feeling more accomplished in my grief. And maybe that would lead to some healthy closure, like the kind of closure I've experienced when I grieved the loss of both of my parents. When my mother and father each passed away, I had a short window of time to prepare, but everything still happened pretty fast, and it still hit me pretty hard. But because I didn't turn away from the pain, and I didn't hide from it, in fact, I dealt with it because I didn't have any shame. I was just able to realize how blessed I was to have a beginning, middle, and an end with both of my parents in our collective stories, and that's what set my grief in motion. So now when I do reflect on the parts of my past that includes my parents, I feel whole and complete, not lost and bewildered the way I feel about my personal past. And the stories I choose to keep in my mind that have my mom and dad in them seem to offer some kind of applied wisdom and thankfulness. I do still miss my parents very much, but I don't pine or ache for them like I did during the first couple of years after they died. And I don't live in my thoughts where I still need my parents to be alive to find my connection to them because I took the time to face all of the stages of my grief in each wave as soon as it washed over me. So I think I actually evolved and transitioned and because I consciously examined my grieving process, I think I could more easily accept that my mom and dad were gone. And then I could rejoice in the fact that I ever had them at all. I know for certain I haven't fully done that kind of grieving for the loss of my former life because the thought never dawned on me until now. The very last point in Vonnegut's lecture might have been the most useful takeaway for me to apply to the shape of my own emerging story. Anna's final words also seem like a fitting conclusion for me to leave you with in this episode. Vonnegut was honoring his uncle Alex. He told his audience of a man who lived a very sparse and contained life with no children and a career as a boring old insurance salesman. But whenever young Kurt was with his uncle, and they were sharing something simple like a glass of lemonade or a sandwich on a pretty day, Uncle Alex would always say, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Vonnegut gave the listeners of his lecture the permission to take those words and apply them as if they were our own. So I am. So seldom in life, Vonnegut the pessimist added, do we stop and think about the tiny pleasures in the simplest moments. When he said this, I was instantly convicted by how often I dismiss the great moments I have in my life right now, because there are always so many. And whenever I only gaze back into my past to show off a good moment I've already known, that action diminishes my present as if it doesn't matter as much to me. But also, I'm convicted by how much I've tried to dismiss my real feelings, the ones that I still have about my past, all because I feel like I shouldn't have those feelings anymore. So even when I reflect on my past 10 years of struggle, I know I'm prone to glossing over all the good moments in favor of dwelling on the disappointments, the heartaches, and the many challenges I didn't overcome with a lot of grace. And I'm certain now that I'm stuck because I haven't officially let go of my former life, and I'm dwelling on my past with way too much attachment and not fully embracing my present with open arms. In a way, it's been easier for me to stay stuck in my shaming phase by putting on some kind of self-imposed luxury guilt in my heart that reorients my awareness of my previous life as if I was wrong or bad or that I deserve to be cut off from a life of financial stability because I didn't handle my wealth well when I still had it. And I guess I've mistaken this type of shaming conversation as a form of letting go. But obviously I haven't let go. There's still too much interest in my heart about my former life, which might sound like a contradiction of sorts, I know, but this is just me being honest. I miss parts of what I recall as my easier life, but I also don't think I really want to have most of it back, because I'm different now, 
And I think what I really want is what's next? But suddenly, I feel aware of the fact that I can also say I know how nice it will be to move on from one story shape into the next as soon as I'm ready. I have the choice now to trust in this newfound understanding that every story that takes shape around me will be a blessed mix of good fortune and ill fortune, as well as many other nuanced and complex events that will keep my life moving forward forever if I stop looking back. Knowing me, I'll probably continue to struggle with my life as the honest fraud because I'm a storyteller who's always determined to contain my life into something I can better explain or something I can live with. But exploring this with you on this podcast is a big start for me. So I'm thankful to you for listening. And I'm looking forward to the next episodes of Nerd Alert that are already starting to take shape in my mind like a mathematical equation on Kurt Vonnegut's extra useful diagram. By the way, to read the entire first chapter of my memoir, The Imposition Tour, go to sonyawrites.com, and that's S-O-N-J-A writes.com, and click on the About the Imposition Tour drop-down menu for the complete table of contents. You can also follow me on Instagram at sbzthewriter. I'm not very good at posting, but I'm going to try to do better, especially now that I've got this podcast, so I hope you'll join me. Also, please check out my show notes for this episode. I've put links to all of the things that I've mentioned, the articles, my blog, the YouTube, This American Life, everything that you need to know to be just as nerdy as me is right there in the show notes, so I hope you'll check those out. Until next time, nerd alert, you've been warned.